Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Mint Mobile. The best part of spring cleaning is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash freak. That's mintmobile.com slash freak. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash freak. Upfront payment of $45 required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on their first three-month plan only. Speeds are slower, above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on Cars.com? Here's how it works. You add your car to your garage to track its market value and cash in when the time is right to sell. Track both your car's historical and projected value. When it's time to sell, easily secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. What inspired this is a discussion that has come up in the last four or five years about the growing income disparity. The rich growing richer, the poorer poorer. That's Jim Andrioni. I'm a professor of economics at the University of California in San Diego. The discussion he's talking about, now I'm guessing you've had this discussion yourself, the rich, as the data have shown, are getting richer. So it's important to know whether the rich are going to work in the best interest of the whole society. So one obvious question to ask, how does wealth affect how a given person treats other people? The scientific evidence to date has been mm, not very encouraging. So no, it's not just you. Science also agrees that the more money a person has, the more likely she is to be an inconsiderate, rude jerk. We took to the streets to see how widely held this view is. We asked a simple question. Who do you think are more selfish, rich people or poor people? That's a tough question because I've known both. Oh, rich people are more selfish because... If you live it comfortable and you see the next man out here not living and you can't help him, that's selfish. That, that, that is selfish. I would say the poor person is more willing to give because they know what it's like, like to not have. I don't think it depends on your wealth. I think it depends on the type of person you are and the way you were raised. Maybe rich people, I think, just because of maybe more of the stigma. I don't know if they actually are, but I think rich people. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. I know a number of rich people who are extremely generous, uh, but at the same time, I have seen homeless people be very generous with each other. I think it depends on the individual. I don't necessarily think it's an economic determination. We've been told, however, that it is an economic determination. In a country more and more polarized by inequality, Paul Piff led a series of startling studies. Wealthier participants took two times as much candy from children as did poor participants. There are a lot of um, studies uh, that came out that saying that um, in some domains, some ways, a lot of ways, the, the rich people seem to be less pro-social is the term that the psychologists use for that. Yeah, there's all this view, right, in society that the rich are super selfish. That's Jan Stope. 
another economist. Even in the Bible, right, there's this quote that it is easier for a camel to crawl through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Even I mean, in pop songs, you hear about how selfish the, the rich are. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich. But here's something important to keep in mind. A lot of the scientific evidence for the rich being selfish came from lab experiments. But there are differences between the lab, our lab setting, and the field. That's Nikos Nikoforakis, another economist. So it's important to go and check your intuition in the field. And that's exactly what Nikoforakis, Stope, and Andrioni did. They ran a field experiment. Well, why don't we just go and throw these letters to houses of the rich and the poor people and see... You know, who is nicer? Who is more pro-social? All it took was a Dutch postal worker's uniform, some envelopes stuffed with cash, and a slight sense of the absurd. Today on Freakonomics Radio, what did this experiment show? Yeah, so for us, the results were quite shocking. WNYC Studios, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. So would you consider yourself an altruistic person, not altruistic? <laughs> well, you know, when you, when you study altruism, people always presume that's because you are altruistic. So that, that opens you up to lots of, uh, lots of people hanging around the, uh, you near the uh, cocktail hour time, uh-huh. <laughs> ho- hoping you're going to pay for the drinks. But uh, I would think you could make the opposite argument, though, which is I can't, plainly I can't buy you a drink because <laughs> that would uh, yes. establish a set of priors that would show a bias in my research. Yes, I, it's, that's what I say. You know, that I, you know, if I understood this altruism stuff, I wouldn't have to study it. Jim Andrioni was a pioneer in developing what's known as the economics of altruism. The idea that... Um, Studying people who are governed by morals, are governed by care and concern for others, and who, you know, work hard to give their money away, all seemed like um, outside of economics. So that was something that was that was, for, that was for the sociologists to understand, maybe some psychologists, but it's really not economic. Why didn't you leave it to the sociologists? What was it that led you to become interested? There was a paper that I read when I was in graduate school by a guy named Russell Roberts. He drew some conclusions that I thought were didn't quite make sense to me. And that was that he assumed that people care about the total supply of charity, irrespective of where it's, it comes from. So if the government comes and takes money from your pocket, gives that to the charity, then you should dollar for dollar withdraw donations to the charity. So was this about the notion of crowding out and how one kind of dollar would crowd out another? Yes. So, yeah. So that's what we've come to call uh, the crowding out hypothesis in economics, that uh, you you don't care where the dollars come from or how they get to the charity. You just care about the final consumption of the charity and the final consumption of yourself. And um, any path to that is just the same. And if you have that as your assumption, you're going to be able to draw conclusions like the government should just get out of the business of helping poor people because if we're altruistic, then the the private sector will take over that responsibility all on its own. 
And what made you care enough about that to want to do something about it, to want to challenge it? Because <laughs> I'm stubborn, <laughs> basically. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I see something that is, I think isn't right. I have to kind of go figure it out and figure out what's, what, what's not sitting with me until I uh, produce a paper about it. The paper that Andreoni produced in 1988 showed that government contributions did not completely crowd out private gifts. That is, in contrast to the direct dollar-for-dollar reduction model, a $1 increase in government contributions decreased private giving by only 5 to 28 cents. This led to the next question. Why do so many people give away so much money when they're not obligated? Andreoni called this phenomenon warm glow altruism. The idea that people are motivated to give to charities for reasons other than the output or the production of the charity itself, that I'm happier when it's coming out of my wallet. But what makes me happier when it comes out of my wallet, that's, boy, there's a, just a huge list of things to think about that could possibly be, be at stake here. Name some. Oh, so... My personal impact, I can have some guilt that I'm relieving. I have some pride. I can, I uh, have sympathy for the person that's being helped. Um, I get a reputational boost uh, that helps me in other domains. And all those things are motivations. Some of those stories are much more complicated than others to tell. I think a lot of people would hear that and say, but wait a minute, altruism is meant to be, you know, pure, giving, selfless. And you're saying there's utility derived from giving. So how do you square that circle? Uh, we call it impure altruism. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I'm not going to give to uh, an organization that I don't think is doing good work and the work that I believe in that I want to support. Just like I'm not going to eat food that I, I'm not hungry for. But the, the actual food that I choose, I choose because it tastes good. Andreoni was arguing that pure altruism is very rare. Much more common are impure or warm glow altruism, which reward the giver along with the recipient. Now, you might argue this presents humanity in a bad light, that even when we give to charity, we want something for ourselves. But that's what the data seem to indicate. And moreover, if you really care about raising money for charity, wouldn't you like to understand a giver's true motivations? And even more valuable, what specifically are the invisible forces lying behind altruistic behavior. And that's what um, basically in the last 25 years or so since I published that paper, there's been a um, huge, rich literature trying to answer that question. Andreoni and other economists have explored all kinds of angles on altruism, the power of matching funds and prizes, the role played by guilt and the herd mentality, and how blonde women raise more money than anyone else by a long shot. If you want to hear more about this, you can check out an earlier Freakonomics Radio episode. It's called How to Raise Money Without Killing a Kitten. Now, in the last several years, as income inequality has become a hot topic, there's been more and more work on the relationship between income and altruism and other forms of what's called pro-social behavior. You may have heard about this research. Experimental evidence that rich people are more likely to break the law while driving, cheat in a game of chance, also to lie during negotiations, and endorse unethical behavior, including stealing at work. The academic paper that resulted made headlines everywhere. 
The paper making headlines was by Paul Piff. I'm an assistant professor of psychology and social behavior at the University of California, Irvine. The evidence he presented was disturbing, to say the least. People all the way at the top who made $150,000, $200,000 a year were actually cheating four times as much as someone all the way at the bottom who made under $15,000 a year just to win credits for a $50 cash prize. But how compelling was the evidence? There's a difference between what we then call uh, behavior or preferences. That, again, is Jan Stope. I am a behavioral economist at the Erasmus School of Economics in the Netherlands. And the reason this matters, the difference between a behavior and preferences? The reason why this uh, matters is that situations give different incentives to behave differently. We call it the endogeneity problem. Jim Andrioni again. Are the rich fundamentally different people than the poor? Or do the rich face fundamentally different choices than the poor? For example, there are studies that show that uh, the rich tax evade more. Does that make them more selfish? A rich person's more likely to have self-employment income, going to itemize their taxes, be able to overstate some deductions here, hide some things there, and more easily get away with cheating. But if you're poor, you probably have a job that pays a wage and your employer reports your income and your taxes to the IRS. And there's really nothing, no choices for you to make, no opportunity for you to cheat on your taxes. So also the previous literature, for example, about uh, the rich maybe speeding more in traffic or cutting off other pedestrians. A rich person might say, well, $200 is not a pittance, but won't materially affect my life. Whereas a poor person would say, if I get that $200 traffic ticket, I'm not going to be able to pay my daycare worker this month. So to conclude from this behavior that the rich have more selfish preferences, that seems like a bit of a stretch. So that made us wonder. They wondered, in part, because many of the findings about the rich being more selfish were derived from surveys or lab experiments. But it can be tricky to measure something like altruism in the lab for several reasons. Yeah, the, the term is the experiment or demand effect. So if subjects know that they participate in an experiment, they may behave a little bit differently than they would otherwise. If they think you're studying generosity, they don't want to be seen as not being generous. Also, many of the studies, uh, for example, by Paul Piff, use student subjects. And they then use a trick where they prime these subjects to either think that they're poor or to think that they're rich. And they do that by having them compare themselves to the richest or the poorest people in the countries, something like that. But from an objective standpoint, they're sort of a, an homogenous group, right? They're about the same age and about the same wealth. What we found is that the highest earners, they were actually substantially less likely to give to help others. Nikos Nikaferakis again. I'm a professor of economics at New York University in Abu Dhabi. He had run his own lab experiments. We actually had individuals come into the lab, perform a task and earn a non-trivial amount of money. And then we paid them according to their relative performance and asked them at the end whether they would like to share some of their earnings with other people who may have earned less in the lab. His findings were similar to Paul Piff's people with more money were less likely to share. But of course, the problem here is that people outside the laboratory earn their wealth in very different ways. Some people just inherit their large fortunes, 
or they just are born with a gift and they have a brilliant idea that makes them very wealthy. Why else might lab findings not reflect reality? Another reason is, in our lab, the most competitive people would inevitably uh, earn more. But in reality, we also have vetting processes, typically in organizations, such that we reward competitiveness, but you also want to make sure that the person you put in a key position is not some kind of mean-spirited, selfish person who just wants to extract resources from the organization. And the third reason? And of course, the third reason is that these laboratory studies are typically done with students who earn, in our case, a considerable amount of money. But when we're talking generalizing these results, the rich people are at least millionaires. There are studies that use panels. Jan Stope again. And panels being a group of people who will sign up to participate in a study. So with this trick, you can get rich or poor households to get involved in your uh, experiment. But here then we have another problem, and that's what we call selection bias. So it could be a certain type of household that signs up to participate in such panels. And those could be the more pro-social, scientific, do-gooders households. So it seems... (laughs) It's always a problem, right? No matter what kind of uh, experimental method you use, there is a problem. The actual experiment you'd like to do is get Eddie Murphy in here and, and Dan Aykroyd and, and trade places, right? As in the movie, Trading Places. Make the rich one poor and the poor one rich and see if uh, they adopt each other's uh, behaviors. i wait till you get to about 64, then I'd buy. You'd have cleared out all the suckers by then. I was poor and no one liked me. I lost my job, I lost my house, Penelope hated me. But, you know, we can't do that experiment in reality. So we have to see if we can measure things about the environment or about the choices people can make that would allow us to sort of run this experiment in our minds and uh, through our data. So if we can put something in the field, and we can do it in a way where people don't actually know they're being studied, that's the best, because that's the actual behavior that we're trying to study. Coming up on Freakonomics Radio, how Andrioni, Stope, and Nika Farakis pulled off this field experiment. Yeah, I was actually, I was, when, when I did this, I was super nervous. And, of course, we'll tell you the results. When I first saw the results, I kind of thought we failed. That's right after this break. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Redfin. Whether you need to buy or sell a home or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin has got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even the same day with a local Redfin agent. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents get you the best price possible for your home. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Today. 
Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Marriott. Town Place Suites by Marriott has all the comforts of home. Cook up a meal in a full kitchen, unpack and stay organized with the in-room alpha closet system, plus bring your pet and have your best friend by your side. Town Place Suites by Marriott has all the amenities you need to feel at home during your stay. Find the comforts of home at Town Place Suites. Go there with Marriott Bonvoy. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Amica Insurance. Amica Insurance is all about empathy. They know your auto, home, and life insurance are more than just policies. Home insurance is about protecting the life you've built. Auto insurance is there to protect you on the road ahead. That's why Amica takes a consultative approach to help protect what matters most to you. They are a customer-owned insurance company that puts your needs first, and their representatives are available 24-7 for claim-related matters. As Amica says, empathy is our best policy. The economists Jim Andrioni, Nikos Nikoforakis, and Jan Stope wanted to run a field experiment to find out if the rich are more selfish than the poor. Here's Stope. The background is there's this uh, laboratory experiment, which is pretty famous in our community, called uh, the Dictator Game. For what it's worth, we wrote about the Dictator Game at length in Super Freakonomics and a related game called Ultimatum. And in the Dictator Game, there are two players... One is the dictator, and he gets an amount of money, typically $10, and he can split that between himself and the recipient. Split it by, say, putting some of the money in an envelope and giving it to the other person. And any amount of money that's given is typically interpreted as a measure for altruism. But this kind of lab experiment, as we discussed earlier, has a lot of limitations, especially the subject's awareness that they're in an experiment which might increase their desire to appear generous. So I was thinking, how can I have such a game in the real world uh, where money comes falling from the sky, let's say, and people can choose to divide it between themselves and someone else? And then I thought of this uh, envelope trick. Not the envelope trick from the dictator game, a different kind of envelope trick. So there's this household and all of a sudden they receive an envelope with cash. It's not theirs, but they have the power to give it back, yes or no. So it it is a, a little bit like they play a dictator game. But then in real life and without people knowing that they participate in an experiment. So when Jan phoned me up and he said, you know, I have this technique, I said, well, why don't we just go and throw these letters to houses of the rich and the poor people and see, you know, who is nicer, who is more pro-social. We found poor households and rich households in the Netherlands. And uh, we did it there because we can get a lot more data about the households so we can know how rich they are and know how poor they are. That's because European governments, like the Netherlands government, have much more open policies about collecting data for research purposes. Plus which... Jan Stope happened to live there. I said, look, guys, um, let me conduct all the uh, the treatments here in uh, in Holland uh, because I just I, I know that you're probably too busy to do it. And I know that I would love it too much to do it. So I think it's a win win for everyone. The idea was to intentionally misdeliver a letter that was addressed to a real person with real money in it and see whether people kept the letter 
or send it on to the rightful recipient by dropping it into a mailbox on the street. We picked a little greeting card. It was signed to be uh, coming from somebody's grandpa. The front side was a, a picture of a windmill, just an old-fashioned, something typically that a grandfather could choose, right? And then on the other side of the envelope, uh, we had a message. Uh, it was, uh, Dear Joost, here is 20 euros for you, grandfather. And then there was a note of 20 euros. Joost, the addressee, was a real friend of Jan's, and the envelope listed his real street address so that it could be easily forwarded. It also had a real-looking postmarked stamp, courtesy of some skillful photoshopping. There was only one weird detail. The envelope was semi-transparent, so you could clearly read the card and see the cash. Because then our uh, subject in the experiment, the rich household or the poor household, they can see that grandfather intends to send 20 euros or 5 euros to Joost. For experimental purposes, there would be two cash treatments, either 5 euros or 20 euros. And so I get this question a lot, right? Who sends out money in a transparent envelope. That is kind of weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, from a scientific standpoint, we are interested in uh, treatment differences. We always use this same envelope. So that means that uh, the weirdness of it is the same in all treatments. Okay. So the recipient can clearly see the cash inside the envelope. Now, this is something that's a benefit to the proper owner, but it's also a benefit to the accidental recipient. They also loaded some envelopes, not with cash, but with bank transfer cards, something like a check, which therefore can only be cashed by the person it's made out to, again, in denominations of both 5 and 20 euros. Which is worthless to the accidental recipient, but it's still worth 20 euros to the intended recipient. So if you're altruistic, you still have the same incentive because you're going to help the uh, intended recipient just as much in both cases. Uh, if you're selfish, you're going to benefit much more when it's got cash in it. So we try to map where all the rich people live and where all the poor people live, and then we randomize them into treatment. So our observations are, are filled with the people that we want, but there's also there is no selection bias. They identified 360 households, 180 rich, 180 poor. The poor houses were identified by public assistance and subsidized housing records. In rich households, we identified those by the market value of the houses that were for sale in that neighborhood. And after the envelope stunt was over, they'd be able to get hold of government data to confirm each household's level of wealth. So we know how rich and how poor they are. The average wealth of the rich is about two and a half million. And the average wealth of the poor is about uh, 25,000. So that's a factor of almost 100. From October through December of 2013, Stope delivered the envelopes at regular intervals. Again, there were 360 envelopes, all addressed to Little Yost, all containing either cash or transfer cards worth either 5 or 20 euros, and all intentionally misdelivered to specifically identified rich or poor households. Yeah, so through friends uh, of friends of mine, uh, I was able to, to acquire an official outfit of the mail company that we have in the Netherlands. So that means I had a, uh, a polo and I had a bag and also even I had a cap. And so I would be dressed up and cycle through the city on my way to a rich household or a poor household. For the record, Freakonomics Radio does not endorse impersonating a postal worker, even in the name of scientific research. 
Yeah, I was actually, I was, when, when I did this, I was super nervous. So whenever I uh, misdelivered an envelope at a mailbox, I tried to get out as fast as possible. The rich, they tend to have huge driveways, right? And therefore, most of them have a, a mailbox at the side of the street. So I loved those villas because that's a hit and run, right? Um, and also, obviously, I got chased by a dog once, um, but and I got away. No one saw me, but uh, yeah, <laughs> thought that was pretty cool as well. <laughs> and then we just waited to see what would show up. So the big question then is, what did you find and what did you learn about rich people versus poor people in this kind of creative, interesting, albeit very unusual form of what we might call altruism? Given the research that we had been reading from Paul Piff and others like that, we, we kind of expected the rich people to be less likely to return these envelopes. What we found was, in fact, the opposite. Yeah. So for us, the results were quite shocking. Uh, the rich returned way, way more than the poor. In fact, they returned twice as much. Uh, so return rates of the rich were roughly 80% and uh, return rates of the poor were roughly 40%. And uh, the rich didn't care whether there was money in the envelope or not. Cash versus the check, they returned them at about the same rate. We find that roughly 25% of the cash came back from poor families, whereas roughly 75% of cash came back from the rich families. But for us, the biggest shock was in observing that uh, the non-cash envelopes were also not returned as much by the poor families. The poor also, for these envelopes, returned roughly half. So it's looking to us when we first get the results that the rich people are actually much more altruistic than the poor. I kind of thought we failed. <laughs> we found the wrong result, which in the sense I, I did expect that uh, the poor would greatly outperform in terms of kindness, the rich. Since rich people and poor people may differ on dimensions other than income, what were some of the potential confounding factors that might influence or pollute your findings? Yeah, so when the experiment uh, was over, we got data from uh, Statistics Netherlands that provided us with uh, details on all our subject houses, uh, their education level, uh, their age, that, uh, for all people in each household. We include all of these in this uh, regression analysis and basically what we find, so then we can see statistically if all these factors matter. And quite to our surprise, none of them seemed uh, to have an effect. But then we noticed a couple other things. Uh, first of all, the, uh, the envelopes that the rich people got were being returned much faster than the envelopes of the poor folks. And it is here actually where, uh, where uh, Steve Levitt uh, played uh, a big role. Steve Levitt is my Freakonomics friend and co-author. He's an economist at the University of Chicago. Hey, Dubner, how are you? Hey, Levitt. You can go back to what you're doing. Thanks. So the first time I presented this paper was at a seminar at the University of Chicago. And I was telling this story about how the rich and poor differ in, in selfishness. So this slide came up where I present uh, the figure of the return rates. And then Steve Levitt said, well, Jan, you're, you're mistaken. So you tell us the story that you're measuring pro-social behavior of the rich and the poor, but this is not what you're actually measuring. You're, you're measuring the incapability of the poor to return an envelope. And for me, that was such a new, fresh insight. And this then reminded us of a discussion that's been very popular lately 
about poverty actually being a causal factor in people not being able to get stuff done as efficiently. I guess there are other factors like, you know, a poor person is more likely, I'm assuming, to have a longer commute time and therefore less just time on the clock, right? A lot of things like that. Yes, that might well be true as well. Um, They have more strict hours at work, perhaps, probably more likely to be um, single parents, uh, all kinds of things that are correlated with being poor that add to the stress that people have, preoccupy their minds, make it harder for them to keep their priorities. There's this uh, famous uh, study uh, where a bunch of researchers from uh, Harvard uh, go to India to poor farmers. And these farmers have a harvest once per year. So that means that once per year, they have a big bag of money because they sell everything. But as the year progresses, their bag of money becomes less and less. Hence, their financial stress increases and increases. So what they did is they did an IQ test at the moment when the poor were sort of at their richest and when they were at their poorest. And they found that in the IQ test, they had a lower score when the poor were at their poorest. So this uh, story inspired us to, uh, to look at our data through a different lens. So if we look at the distance from the payday, we can maybe see a difference between the behavior of the poor and the behavior of the rich. Expecting that as we get farther from payday, we're going to get more stress in the poor households and fewer things added to their to-do list. If you cut up a month in four weeks, that in Holland at least, typically people get paid their salaries or their unemployment benefits or pensions in the last week of the month. We then looked at uh, how much is returned one week later, two weeks later, and uh, three weeks later. And for the rich, we found no pattern at all. So they don't care. They uh, return envelopes equally uh, spread out over the month. But not so much for the poor. They were returned at a very high rate at the week of the paycheck arriving. And then the probability of being returned went down, 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 practically to zero. And it was the week right before payday. Um, this is, it's a very striking pattern. So that's consistent with this idea that as the month goes on and your budget gets tighter and your constraints get harder and your stress builds, you have difficulty accomplishing small chores or prioritizing things. But this holds for the non-cash envelopes. It did not hold for the cash envelopes. Uh, which is also sort of a puzzle. Now, to us, it tells an interesting story, though. So if you're poor and you get an envelope that has a 20-euro note in it by mistake, that 20 euros is very valuable to you. And you have to ask yourself, am I a responsible parent, for instance, if I don't take this 20 euros? And that's a real moral dilemma there in that. Yes, exactly. The marginal utility of money. Yeah, so an, an extra 100 euros for a rich family does not give as much pleasure as for someone who's poor. Yeah, so we call that the diminishing marginal utility of, of cash. So those are our three variables. One we call our basic propensity for altruism, one we call our basic need for cash, and the other is the stress of being poor. And then the and different environmental factors between the rich and the poor, we try to factor out so we get at the, the true value of that basic underlying altruism. Right, so we then need a, a model, a theoretical model, to map behavior to preferences. We model it as follows. So when a household returns an envelope, if alpha, it's altruism towards 
uh, Joost, the, the, the intended recipient of the card, minus N, the neediness of the contents of the envelope, minus uh, P, so the financial pressure, the stress costs, when this is greater than zero, so when altruism outweighs the neediness and the stress, then a household returns the envelope. So we, with the data that we have, we can actually estimate the alpha, the N, and the P. And when we account for those, what we find is that the basic tendency to want to do the right thing is the same for the rich and the poor, but it's the fact of being rich and poor that affects these other aspects of the decision and affects the outcome. What we find is, not surprisingly, that the N differs between the rich and the poor. So, meaning that the poor need the money harder than the rich. Also, in line with this relatively new literature on uh, financial stresses of the poor, we find that the P, the financial pressure, is greater for the poor than for the rich. So then we have left alpha, altruism, and we find that these are the same between the rich and the poor. I consider this to be a really a hardcore economic insight, right? So as economists, we always say that incentives shape behavior. And this is another example of that. Um, and so there are many other studies that look mainly, well, actually, that look only at behavior. And so far, it seems as if our study is the only study that has uh, disentangled behavior from preferences. So what does this study, for all its cleverness and novelty and thoughtfulness, what does it actually have to teach us? We know that poverty has lots of social costs. Our study actually suggests there is one more and potentially an important one. It means that when someone loses, let's say, some of their income, this doesn't only affect them personally, but it also affects people around them who otherwise may have benefited from pro-social actions, altruistic actions of that person who's now poor. So when we're thinking about the benefits and the cost of poverty programs, we need to take that factor into account, that the financial pressure may make the poor behave more selfishly than they would have in different circumstances. It's, it's true. We don't know how this uh, would translate to different countries. What we did is a study in a medium-sized city in Holland in 2014. So the question is, uh, how does this translate to behavior in Japan in 2027, for example? Uh, that's hard to say. There's this hypothesis that income inequality matters a lot. So the more income inequality that there is, the more selfish uh, the rich behave. And that could be the case, because in, in Holland, after all, income inequality is, is pretty low. Because this study challenged the conventional academic wisdom on the selfishness of the wealthy, we thought it'd be worth hearing from Paul Piff, the psychologist whose research has helped build that conventional wisdom. Okay. <clears throat> My name is Paul Piff. And what I study are the origins of human kindness and how inequality, and in particular economic inequality, shape relations between individuals and within groups in society. So what does Piff make of the argument that a field experiment like this one, with real rich and poor people and real money, is more robust than a lab experiment? So the first thing I would say is the field experiment that Andrioni and colleagues ran, it is a really compelling and well-thought-out experiment. So 
I mean, I think uh, th- that this study and other studies that are emerging are all a piece of the uh, complex mosaic that's emerging, which is to say that how wealth and poverty shape the mind is complex. It's multifaceted. Those relationships aren't categorical uh, or essential, but are, are nuanced. PIF does have a couple of qualifications. I think the first qualification I would make is that any single study, like any single stroke of the brush on a canvas, won't give you a full sense of the picture. Prosociality is something really, really broad. It broadly refers to times, instances, actions that prioritize the welfare of someone else or the well-being of other people at sometimes a cost to yourself, like giving up a seat for someone else on the bus or giving up your place in line when waiting at a coffee shop or stopping for a pedestrian who's waiting to cross at a crosswalk, or volunteering your time to help someone else, or giving to charity. In each of these different situations, you can imagine that a specific behavior or decision could be influenced by any number of factors. There are all sorts of other incentives that play into human decision-making, and one of those things is social incentives. And whereas uh, people from less advantaged backgrounds have less money by definition, For them, their ability to, say, rely on a friend to get by when times are tough, that is ever more salient. And that's a primary coping mechanism for people who are poor or who are relatively disadvantaged. And so in contexts where there's an opportunity to connect with someone, when there's an opportunity to kind of invest in a relationship, it's in those instances that I would say, or that we would predict, you're most likely to find these rich-poor differences in prosociality that align with what we've been finding. The scenario we've been talking about today, meanwhile, the Dutch field experiment, is uh, less a social context and more one where those social incentives have been kind of removed from the picture. It also involves a kind of pro-social behavior or a kind of measure, if you will, a dependent variable that I think people rarely encounter in their daily lives. In fact, I think if you were to ask uh, a friend of yours or someone off the street, when is the last time you received an envelope Uh, that was see-through with cash in it that was mistakenly put in your inbox, but that was actually addressed for someone else, most people would say, that's never happened to me. So uh, that's not to say that that you can dismiss the results of uh, Andreoni and his colleagues' paper at all, but I think it needs to be interpreted within the limitations of the measure. That said, Piff seems to appreciate The Economist's contribution. And what it prioritizes in my mind is that it's important to get outside the lab and complement your laboratory work with field experiments, but also to complement your field experiments with laboratory work. And so there's an approach of complementarity that I want to stress that I think is really important. Both kinds of approaches are really important. And this being among the first really careful field experiments that's been run in a clear way, a clear contribution. In the end, perhaps the most salient lesson from this Dutch field experiment is just how hard it is to generalize about any group of people, male or female, liberal or conservative, rich or poor, because we humans are plainly far more than the sum of our biological parts. We're a dynamic bundle of preferences, decisions, and behaviors, some of them observable, others not. Jim Andrioni again. And so the moral of this story is if you try to think a little bit deeper about how the very fact of being rich or being poor affects 
the kind of choices that you're able to make and the incentives you have to change your behavior before you draw the conclusions that you know, rich people are either better or worse than poor people. You need to ask whether you've accounted for all the ways in which being rich or poor itself affects your behavior. Science requires you to do that. Coming up next time on Freakonomics Radio, they are an American tradition. I know you want it. They're incredibly abundant. It's about 14 and a half million acres of turf. They're also incredibly labor and resource intensive. Every square foot requires 28 gallons of water. We love our lawns, but are they worth the trouble and the cost, financial, environmental, and otherwise? And what would we be doing with our yards if we didn't turn them into manicured parkland? Like it could be, you know, a hundred different leafy greens. As part of our occasional Stupid Stuff series, we take a long, hard look at lawns. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Freakonomics Radio was produced by WNYC Studios and Dubner Productions. This episode was produced by Stephanie Tam. Our staff also includes Shelley Lewis, Merritt Jacob, Greg Rosalski, Christopher Wirth, Eliza Lambert, Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, and Brian Gutierrez, with engineering help from Rick Kwan. Special thanks to Scott Vincent Andrews and Maria Rosa Lunati at OECD. You can subscribe to Freakonomics Radio on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You should also check out our archive at Freakonomics.com. You can stream or download every episode we've ever made. You can also read the transcripts and look up the underlying research. We can also be found on Twitter, Facebook, blah, 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 or via email at radio at Freakonomics.com. Thanks for listening. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.